The sovereignty of God is one of the most fascinating concepts that you can find in the scriptures. You study about the, the sovereignty of God, it produces some things within us. And we'll talk about that toward the end of our study. What does the word sovereign mean? The word sovereign simply means supreme power, supreme authority, and control. You may talk about a king being sovereign, or a nation being sovereign. That is, they're not in the control of another, but they're self-controlling, and they have supreme power and authority. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, what does that mean to us? And so when I ask the question, what does that mean? I'm not just simply asking, does, does sovereignty mean power and authority? But God having supreme power and authority, what does that mean to us? Does that mean that God controls every action? Some think so. That God's controlling every action, everything you do. If you drop your Bible into the floor or your songbook into the floor or you stand up and you trip, God had designed for that to happen, they think. Is that what sovereignty is? Does it mean that God unconditionally chooses who will be saved? Because God is sovereign, he controls all. Does that mean that he controls who will be saved in the sense that he arbitrarily chooses those unconditionally? Does it mean that man is not responsible for his actions? Some think so. That if you do something, like maybe you steal something, but you're not really responsible for that because God had predetermined you were going to steal that anyway. Is that what sovereignty is all about? Does it mean that man has no control over anything in his life? In other words, if you get sick because you're not eating well and eating the wrong kinds of food, you have no control over that because you were going to eat that anyway. God had predetermined you were going to eat bad. So you have no control over your body or your life. Does it mean that God predetermined all things that happen? No matter what happens, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever happens, God had predetermined that. So that if one of the wires shorts out in the auditorium and it sets a fire and the building burns down, God had predetermined that was going to happen and God designed that to happen and it was supposed to happen. We could not have prevented that if we tried. Is that what sovereignty is about? We're going to answer those questions as we go along. Let's talk about the word sovereignty as it's found in the scriptures. We don't see it very often in the scriptures. We see the concept, but we don't see the word very often. In fact, in the New King James, which I use, it's only found one time. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 47, where it talks about the sovereignty of King Saul. That's the only time it's found in the New King James, at least in the edition that I have, as you know, they are updated every year. So you may have one. It appears a couple of times, perhaps, or maybe more. But the one I have only has it one time. Well, it's found in the American Standard Version in Daniel 2.44. And you don't find that in the King James or New King James. But in the American Standard, it is found when it talks about the kingdom being sovereign, the sovereignty of the kingdom, its dominion or its sovereignty. And so it's found there. 
It is found numerous times in, uh, in the New American Standard Bible, if you have that, found in Isaiah 17, 3, Daniel 4, and uh, two passages in Daniel 4, one in 5 and one in 7 and one in chapter 11. Not all talking about the sovereignty of God necessarily, but it may talk about the kingdom and its power and its authority and its sovereign or sovereignty it's found. I find it interesting that in Daniel 4 in verse 3, where we read of the dominion of God, we read of the sovereignty of God in the New Revised Standard Version. We'll come back to that passage a little bit later. But I'm just giving you a flavor that the, the word is found in various translations. The concept is found repeatedly in the scriptures, and that we're going to turn to now. Let's talk about the sovereignty of God. Three things we want to notice about the sovereignty of God. Let's begin with this. Before we answer all of our questions, let's take the sovereignty of God and notice the so- God's sovereignty is affirmed in the Scriptures. So before we get excited and start raising questions, does that mean then, we'll raise that question in a moment, let's just establish that God has His sovereignty. God is supreme ruler. He has ultimate power, ultimate control, and ultimate authority. Let's start with this. Let's understand that God has ultimate control. So one of the first passages we want to notice is one that repeatedly is found when you do any study on the sovereignty of God. If not the first, it may be the second passage that will come to the surface in someone's study would be Psalm 103. So let's go to Psalm 103. If you don't have a Bible, perhaps there's one in the pew or don't have your Bible out. We're going to be doing a concept study, not a word study as much as a concept study. And so to take your passages, and let's go, go to looking in these passages. Psalm 103 now, and verse 19. In Psalm 103, we see that God, the text says, look at verse 19 with me, Psalm 103 and in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So you think of a king having a kingdom, and his kingdom is in a certain territory, but he doesn't rule elsewhere. But God's kingdom, not talking here about the church, but his authority and his power and his rule is over the world. He rules over all. So God indeed is sovereign. Let's go now to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6. You're more familiar with this text. Speaking of Christ, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 15 that he is the only potentate. And he's said to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, what does it mean he's the only potentate? Well, the New King James, notice your footnote in the New King James, if you have footnotes, it'll say his, he is sovereign. He is the only potentate or the only sovereign, the supreme rule and power and authority. So here is our concept of the sovereignty of God. Let's go back now to the Old Testament again. In Exodus chapter uh, 15, this is in Deborah, uh, not Deborah's, but Miriam's song. Following the crossing of, uh, of the deliverance out of Egypt, notice in chapter 15 now, in the midst of this song in verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. He reigns forever and ever. He has all rule, all authority, and all power. Now, Daniel 4.3 talks about his dominion. The New Revised Standard Version says his sovereignty is from generation to generation. Now, that's going to be enough to establish our point. We might add one more to that. In Psalm 47 and in verse 2, he's king over all the earth. Not just a certain territory, 
but over all the earth. Now, what have I seen so far? God has ultimate control. He rules over all. He is sovereign. He's king of kings, lord of lords. He rules forever and forever. His dominion or sovereignty is from generation. He rules over all the earth. Now, we could stop at this juncture and in the study, and we have established that God has his sovereignty or we've affirmed the sovereignty of God. But let's go a step further. Let's notice that God is omnipotent. The word omnipotent means all-powerful. He doesn't just have power, but he's all-powerful. So that affirms the sovereignty of God. Revelation in verse 19 and in verse 6. Revelation 19 now. I know we're looking at a lot of passages. I'll try to give you time to turn to as many of these as you can. Revelation 19 and in verse 6. For the Lord God, I'm reading at the end of the verse. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The Lord God all-powerful reigns. God is omnipotent. Now God had raised the question to Abraham in Genesis 18 and in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is when Sarah laughed. And God raised the question to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, that it may seem like a strange thing that this woman of this age and a man of your age are going to have a child, but is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord is all-powerful, is the point. Ephesians 1 and in verse 11, he works all things according to his will. Now, that can't be said of anyone else. You may work a lot of things according to your will, but God works all things according to his will, suggesting he is all-powerful. In Matthew 19 and verse 26, with God, all things are possible. Not most things, but all things are possible with God. So I've established from the scriptures, or we've established from our study, God has ultimate control. Number one. Number two, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Let's establish another point. Let's throw another card on the table, and we're going to then pick these cards up and make some sense of them in a moment. That God has predestinated concerning salvation. Now, if God is all-powerful and God is sovereign, we need to mix that with the concept and understand there's something that God has predestinated. What that is, that we'll see in a moment. I'm just wanting to establish God has predestinated something concerning salvation. That is, he, he predetermined or made a decision beforehand. What, let's see what the text says. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. This is an important thing because as we talk about the sovereignty of God, if you go to the internet and you say, I want to do a search of the sovereignty of God, the chances are you're going to come into some material if you just do searching to start looking, not knowing where you're looking. They're going to lead you to passages like Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, and they're going to draw the conclusion that God unconditionally chooses man to salvation. That's what sovereignty means to them. So let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, there's the foreknowledge of God, we'll come to that a little bit later. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. Moreover, whom he predestinated, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. All I want you to see at this juncture is that God predestinated some to be conformed to the image of his son. Something God did beforehand because of his foreknowledge, and he is all-powerful, he indeed is sovereign. 
Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 says, Having predestinated us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So God predestinated us to adoption. Look at verse 11, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to his, the purpose of him, who works all things according to his will. There's our phrase we noticed a moment ago. All right, here's what we've seen. God has ultimate control, God is all-powerful, and God has predestinated something concerning salvation. Now let's raise a question. What does God determine? He's all-powerful. He has sovereignty. He is sovereign. He has predestinated something about salvation. What does God determine? Does God determine how man is saved? Is that what these, these texts are saying, like the predestinating of Ephesians 1, Romans 8? Or is it saying that he's determined which individuals will be saved? When God predestinated concerning our salvation, was he merely saying ahead of time or, or uh, predestinating ahead of time the kind of individual that would be saved or how man would be saved? Or was he predestinating which individuals would be saved? Furthermore, let's carry that even a step further. Does he control every action? And does he control every event so that nothing is preventable? In other words, you stand up out of your seat and you trip and you fall in the floor in a few moments. Did God predestinate that to happen so that you could not have prevented that had you been as careful as you could be? Some think so. All we're establishing thus far is God's sovereignty is affirmed. God is ultimate control. God is omnipotent. He has predestinated concerning salvation. Now let's talk about God's sovereignty misunderstood. God's sovereignty has been greatly misunderstood. It has been greatly misunderstood in the denominational world. It's also misunderstood sometimes by us, by the people of God sometimes, misunderstand what God's sovereignty is really about. So let's look at some misunderstandings. Here's the first of those. And one of the most obvious, and that is, someone will say, here's what that means to me. If God is sovereign, and the Bible affirms the sovereignty of God, what that means to me is, salvation is unconditional and man has no choice. You see, that's Calvinism. Another word for Calvinism, another phrase for Calvinism, that's called Reformed Theology. Calvin did not originate that. He merely packaged it where people understood it and made it more consistent. But the thought was around long before Calvin. But this idea of Reformed theology or Calvinism says simply that salvation is unconditional. And they say if God has ultimate control, then God chooses which individuals will be saved unconditionally. But if it's based on a condition, meaning you have a choice, then God doesn't have ultimate control. You're taking part of God's sovereignty away. Well, let's just establish from one text. We could cite multiple texts, but remember this one when you deal with that concept. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 89 says salvation is conditional. 
Speaking of Christ, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Salvation, eternal salvation is offered to all who obey. That tells me salvation is conditional. So if that be true, and I know that God is sovereign, no one denies that. Then I know that God's sovereignty doesn't mean unconditional salvation. Now, let's carry that a little bit further. God did predestinate something, so what are these passages talking about? So let's go back to Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, let's go back and read the text again. God predestinated something, you said, so we've got to accept that. We've got to grapple with that. We've got to come to an understanding of what Ephesians 1 is saying. So let's see if we can figure out what Ephesians 1 is saying. Back to verse 5. Having predestinated us to the adoption as sons. Verse 11, whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. So what did God predestinate? I want us to see that God predestinated the kind of person that would be saved, not the individual that would be saved. Here's how I know. If God predestinated the individual to be saved, then God becomes a respecter of persons. Or shows partiality. Romans 2.11 says there is no partiality with God or God is no respecter of persons. persons. How does that work? Well, if God goes through creation and he picks the individuals and says, I've got ultimate control and I want you to be saved and 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 everybody else I want to be lost, that makes God showing partiality or becoming a respecter of persons. How could it not be? But the text says God is not a respecter of persons, so therefore I know God did not predestinate certain individuals to be saved and others to be lost. Predestination does not imply that it's unconditional. That's an assumption. That if someone said God predestinated us to salvation, that has to be unconditional. That's an assumption. There is nothing in the concept of predestination that automatically means that's unconditional. We'll illustrate that in a moment. You say, how do you know? Well, Romans 2.11 just told me that. If it's unconditional, choosing this one, choosing this one, and choosing this one, then that makes God a respecter of persons. Let's go even further. So if God, what God did was He foreordained the type of person or the kind of person that would be saved. In other words, before the creation of the world, before the world even began, before God ever said, let there be light and there was light, God had already decided, this is the kind of person that will be saved. The one that submits to my will. The one that is obedient. The one that lives holy and godly. God had already decided that. That's the same principle of someone deciding to hire a secretary or an office manager. How so? A man says, you know what, I need an office manager. To run my office. That's what I need. I need a secretary. And so he predestines the secretary. So he's going to have ten candidates come in and interview. He doesn't say, you know what, the fifth one that comes through, I'm just going to arbitrarily choose number five to be the one that's going to be my office manager. But he predetermines ahead of time, my office manager must have experience in this business we're in. Secondly, must have uh, keyboard abilities, know how to use the word know how to use some software on the computer, must have these other skills, and he lays down these qualities, 
Number one doesn't fit that. Number two doesn't fit that. Number three, nor four, or five. But number seven fits the bill. Did he predestinate that individual? No. But he predestinated the type or the kind of person that was going to be his office manager. He didn't know the individual or pick, pick the individual. He picked the kind or the type of person that would do that. Well, let's illustrate. I said we would do that. Let's talk about how sovereignty can be with conditions. Gene Frost, Brother Frost, gave this illustration in his work on sovereignty. Sovereignty with conditional blessings. So follow the illustration because we're going to raise some questions about that. He says, and I quote, In all the realm, the king, not talking about Christ, he's just talking about a king in, in a physical sense. The king was sovereign there was no one holding greater rank with greater authority or greater power. He willed that on a certain day from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, all who came before him and pledged their allegiance personally would receive a special blessing from the king himself. From the time was sufficient to allow every subject to appear and none would be turned away. The day came and many made their appearance and pledged their allegiance. However, the disgruntled and rebellious refused to humble themselves before the king. True to his promise, the king graciously bestowed great favor upon the humble, a reward far exceeding what any had imagined. Now, if you didn't follow all that, here's a king, a literal physical king, who is supreme ruler in his kingdom, and he says, on this day, on the first day of the month of February, what we're going to have is anyone who comes before me and pledges allegiance, I'll give you a blessing. And if you don't, I won't give you a blessing. Some people come, they get a blessing, and others don't. Now let's raise some questions about that. The question first is, did the king surrender his sovereignty by stipulating conditions for the blessing? Would you say now he's not sovereign, he's not the supreme ruler, because he gave conditions to receive the blessing? You wouldn't say that, would you? Not at all. Here's another question. Did he still have power over those who were blessed when the number was determined by the choice the subjects made? Which ones are going to get blessed? He did not arbitrarily choose that. The choice was made by the subjects or the individuals. So when they're making the choice of whether they're going to be blessed, did he surrender his sovereignty? Not at all. The third question, did the action of his subjects in making the choice to submit or refuse in any wise diminish his authority and power? Would you say he doesn't have the power he used to have because he gave them a choice of whether they would be blessed or not? Not at all. Who could rightly deny the sovereignty of the king or that the king was still sovereign, uh, the sovereign king, after he blessed his subjects. In other words, he said, I'll bless you if you respond, and he, they respond and he blesses them. Who can now say he gave up his sovereignty? Well, that's exactly what God did. God is saying, the person who comes before me, I will bless you with salvation. And many refuse. But those who come, they receive. How did he give up his sovereignty when he stipulates conditions that's no different than this king. Here's a second misunderstanding. Sovereignty is contradictory to free will. Some say if God is sovereign, man doesn't have free will. 
The idea is that if man has a choice, then God is not in control. Repeatedly among those of the Reformed theology, when they talk about sovereignty, they say God has all control. If man has any choice, God has no control or doesn't have full control. So man doesn't have free will, closely connected with what we've already noticed, but we're going to add some more to that. Let's establish that man has free will. This is going to apply some things that deal with us as well. Let's go to Matthew 27 in verse 30, 22 in verse 37. Man can choose whether or not he wants to love and to serve God. Now he's told to serve God and to love God, but he can choose, you know what, I don't want to do that, and he can face the consequence. How do I know? Look at verse 37. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Was he saying, everybody's going to, you shall? Does that mean everybody's going to? No, some people don't love him. Some people don't serve him. So I know he wasn't saying this is the unconditional thing that man faces. You are supposed to love him and serve him, but you can choose not to. Man has a choice. Let's go to another choice we have. We can choose whether to repent or not. God commands all men everywhere to repent, but all men everywhere does not repent. That means we have a choice. We can choose whether or not we want to grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.18. Now, you may not do that. So you have a choice in the matter. Now, let's add to that the fact God wants all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4, but not all men are saved, Matthew 7.13 and 14. If God wants everybody to be saved, but everybody's not saved, that means man has free will. He can choose whether he does right or whether he does wrong. Now, Still talking about free will. If man doesn't have free will, he's no different from the rest of creation. What do we mean by that? You see, God made animals and God made plants unable to make the moral choices that man makes. You see, the animal, your dog or your cow, your horse, doesn't make moral choices of what they're going to do. They're going to do right or they're going to do wrong. The plant, the tree, and the flower doesn't do that kind of thing. Man makes moral choices. Now, if man is no different, I mean, he can't make moral choices. He's programmed. Man doesn't have free will. Then the murderer is no different than a bad dog. See the point? See, the murderer... The bad dog, let's start with the bad dog. The bad dog doesn't make moral choices. He's, he's just a bad dog. He yeps and he barks all the time. He's just not a good dog. But the murderer is no different than the bad dog because he can't make moral choices. He doesn't have free will. And the good man is no different than a flower. The flower can't help that it looks good. And the good man can't help that he's good because God programmed him that way. Man does not have free choice. Now let's establish the fact that man's free will is not a denial of God's glory. It is to God's glory. How so? God created all things according to his pleasure and by his will they are and they exist and were created. Revelation 4 and verse 11. In other words, everything that was created was created for his will and for his purpose. But he tells me in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, God wants us to fear God and keep his commandments. Not everybody does that, though. So what do I conclude from that? That man's free will is actually to God's glory. God's glory is not seen in the fact he programs certain people to be his, to his glory, but he gives man free choice, and those who do willfully serve him is to his honor and to his glory. 
Now let's go a step further. Here's a third misunderstanding about God's sovereignty. That if God has foreknowledge, he controls it. Some think that if God has foreknowledge of something going to happen, he's controlling that. That's part of his sovereignty, you see. Now let's establish that God has foreknowledge. God does have foreknowledge. You see, he declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46 and verse 10. What does that mean? The things that happen later, God can say, now it's going to happen. That's prophecy. That's foreknowledge. God has foreknowledge. He's not guessing. He knows exactly what's going to happen. In Romans chapter 4 and in verse 17, he speaks of the future as in the present. Speaks of things that are not yet, that is in the future. It had not happened yet, as though they are. Call that prophetic perfect. He speaks of the future in past tense. I have given into thy hand Jericho, like Jeremiah, Joshua 6 and verse 2. I have made you, in this context, the father of many nations. He hadn't made him that yet, but he's going to. So God for you the future. God has foreknowledge. Now watch this carefully. Foreknowledge doesn't mean God controls that action, though. Just because God knows something is going to happen doesn't mean God controlled that action. Let me illustrate that. God had foreknowledge of the crucifixion. By your determined hands, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Remember that by you, you were crucified and slain? What did he say about that? Let's go to Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 36. Watch his wording here. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, rather. Him being delivered by the determined counsel, and here's our word, foreknowledge of God. You see, when Jesus was crucified, he was delivered by the foreknowledge of God. God knew exactly what they would do. Did God control that? In other words, is God the one that really killed him and God said, I want this man to, to put him on the cross. I want this man to drive the cross, uh, nails and I want this man to do this. I want the side pierced. Here's what I want man to do. I want him to do that. There's a difference in allowing and God being in control of that. If the latter is the case, then the text should read that it wasn't that he you crucified him, but God did that and you couldn't help it because you couldn't have stopped it if you wanted to. Here's something else God foreknew. God foreknew Peter's denial and restoration. Remember in Luke chapter 22? He said, I pray for you that your faith not fail, but when you are converted, in other words, your faith's going to fail. I know it. He fore, has foreknowledge of that. In fact, it was so specific in Matthew 26, 34, this very night you will deny me three times. Not twice, not four, but three times you will deny me. God foreknew exactly what he would do and how many times he would do that. Did God control that? Did God say, now I want you to deny me again, I want you to deny me again, I want you to deny me again, and now I'm through, I'm not going to let you do it again. Did God control that? You see, foreknowledge and control are two different things. Now, here's a, another principle that may get closer to home, misconception. That God pre-plans and orchestrates everything. Now this is part of the concept of this Reformed theology we've been talking about. We often focus on, they say salvation is unconditional and we refute Calvinism. We don't believe all that. But we've been influenced by some of this a little bit. Among brethren, even. 
by our terminology where we talk about as if God preplans and orchestrates everything. How so? Here's the idea. The common idea is that nothing is left to chance. All is out of our control. It means everything is preplanned and predetermined. Everything. Every single thing. So that when someone dies, someone will say, it was his time to go. Now we may use that phrase sometime and not mean a thing by it, but sometimes what that means, listen to this carefully. It was his time to go. It means that he was supposed to die on February the 14th at 3 p.m. And there's nothing could be done to have prevented that. He's supposed to die that day. God had pre-planned that. If he'd have taken care of himself, if he'd have been cautious and careful, he couldn't have, because God had planned that that was going to happen that very day and nothing we could do about that. It was his time to go. And you've got a time to go. So it's already clocked in and there's nothing you can do about that. So there's no need in you being careful. If God has decided you're going to die 10 years from now, go out and be as careless as you can. You're not going to die because God's programmed you for 10 years from now. But you don't know that. Or another phrase that's sometimes used, it was supposed to happen. Anything that happens, that was supposed to happen. It was supposed to happen. That God had pre-planned that. Because you see, he's sovereign. He controls everything. He orchestrates everything that's going to happen. And again, you jump up out of your seat and you fall in the, the floor. Well, that was supposed to happen. I couldn't have hit, prevent that because God had planned that years ago that you were going to fall on February the 14th when you got out of your pew. Nothing could be done about that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 9. I want us to see that God has power that he doesn't exercise. Here's the concept. If God has ultimate power, he's exercising ultimate power. Follow that. If God has ultimate power, he must be exercising that, we are told. So... If God has the power to pre-plan and orchestrate everything, which he could do, I suppose, then he must be doing that. Well, what I learned in Matthew 3, Jesus said God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Was he doing that? He said, well, no, he wasn't taking stones and turning them into children of Abraham. Then he doesn't have the power to do that. Oh, no, no, he has the power to do that. He has the power. He could do that, but he wasn't. God has power that he doesn't exercise in control. Now let's go a step further. Let's go a little deeper with this. I want us to see there's a difference in God's ability and right to rule the world and what we call divine determinism. What's divine determinism? The concept we're talking about. Here's divine determinism. That God determines or causes or orchestrates everything in history according to his preconceived plan. So if you get out in the parking lot and you slip on the ice and you fall, there's nothing you could have done. You couldn't have been more careful if we'd have tried to melt the ice or if you had had somebody to help you. It was going to happen. There's not a thing you could do to prevent that. That's predetermined divine determinism. God determines, causes, and orchestrates everything to happen according to his preconceived plan. We're influenced by a little of that. I guess this was just supposed to be. Whatever happens, that was just supposed to be. There's nothing I could do about that. Well, if that's the case then, why do we pray that God's will be done on earth? Because his will is going to be done on earth. There is no, he has ultimate control. 
Why do I pray that then? Why was I supposed to pray? You will be done on earth as it is in heaven because there is no changing. Oh, everything's wound up like a clock and it's going to run. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. It's possible to resist something that God has ordained. Go to Romans chapter 13. And verse 1, talking about civil government, let every soul be subject to the civil authorities or governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are, the King James says, ordained, New King James appointed of God. So here are civil authorities that are ordained or appointed by God. Can I resist that? So God has willed and ordained that, but can I resist that? Well, let's see. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Yes, I can resist that authority. I can resist the ordinance or the ordination of God. I may pay a price for that. That's not the question. But it's possible to resist what God has ordained. Now, there's possible for man to do evil that never entered God's mind. If divine determinism be correct then that means when you're doing something evil, God had already pre-planned that and had it in his mind. But it's possible for God to do something that never entered man's mind, God's mind. Let's go to Jeremiah. Do you remember when they were in chapter 7? I want you to notice two passages with me. Jeremiah chapter 7, when they were bowing down before their idols, he said, uh, they've done evil in my sight, verse 31. And at the end of verse 31... They were burning their sons and their daughters to the fire, which I did not command, nor did it enter my heart. God said, I wasn't even thinking they should do that. But they're doing it anyway. Go to 19. Jeremiah 19 and in verse 5. God said at verse 5, speaking of them offering sacrifice before Baal, which I did not command nor speak, nor did it come into my mind. See, if divine determinism be correct, that was in the mind of God because he had pre-planned they were to worship idols because they couldn't do it unless God had planned it. And God had it in his mind. There are some things going on God said never entered my mind. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Now, I want us to see God's decrees were unchangeable, or were, uh, were changeable rather. If divine determinism is correct, God has decreed you're supposed to fall when you stand up. Or you're supposed to have a crash when you get near home. Or your house was supposed to burn if it burns. There's nothing you could do about that. It's all predetermined. All predetermined. So God has made a decree and it's never going to change. But I want us to see a number of decrees that were changeable. God had said that he would destroy Nineveh. Let's go to Jonah, if you will. Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3 beginning at verse 4. Verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, so this is from God. Verse 4, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the decree of God. Nineveh is going to be overthrown. But, but, verse 10, God saw their works that they turned from their way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. God said, I'm going to destroy him, and then God changed his mind about that. Here's a decree that was changed. All right, let's go to another one. Let's go to the book of 2 Kings. You remember God saying in 2 Kings chapter 20 that Hezekiah was going to die through Isaiah the prophet. Set your house in order, verse 1, you shall die and not live. Hezekiah, you're going to die. 
But we don't read far until we see at verse 6 that God has added 15 years to his life. The decree had changed. Divine determinism is not true. Well, here's another case. Let's go to Second Samuel, 1 Samuel 23. This one's quite interesting. 1 Samuel chapter 23. When Saul had come upon David at Keilah, the text says that David had asked the question, verse 10, uh, verse 11, said, O Lord, verse 10, uh, your servant certainly heard that Saul seeks me uh, seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for, for my sake. Verse 11, will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand and will Saul come down as your servant has? And I pray, tell your servant, uh, uh, tell your servant. In other words, tell me, am I going to be delivered in the hand of Saul? Now drop down to verse 13. The text says that David escaped from Keilah. In other words, he wasn't delivered in the hand of Saul. God had said, this is what's going to happen, but then that didn't happen. It means the circumstances had changed. So again, a decree had changed. Now let's go to Jeremiah 18. If you don't turn to another one, a passage on this, get this passage. Jeremiah chapter 18. You do very much studying on the sovereignty of God, you will come across Jeremiah 18 in multiple sources. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. God makes a decree about nations that can change. That's what I want us to see. God said at verse 8, If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. So I said I'm going to destroy this nation, but if it changes, I won't destroy it. Verse 9, And the instant I speak to a nation concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it, and it does evil in my sight and does not obey my voice, I will relent concerning the good that I said I would benefit it. So I said, I'm going to bless this nation, and they turn, then I'm not going to bless them. So God has a decree that sometimes changes. That's all we want to see. Divine determinism is not true. All right, let's go to the third and final thing we want to talk about. Sovereignty is affirmed. Sovereignty is misunderstood. God's sovereignty, it's meaning to us. What do you take home with you today? And you say, well, we've been studying about the sovereignty of God, and I saw some misunderstandings and and yeah, we saw all of that. But what does this mean to me? What do I take home and how do I use this tomorrow? As I go to work, go to school, whatever I do. What does it mean to me? Well, here's what sovereignty should mean. It should provoke praise. The more we study about the sovereignty of God should make us more determined. I want to praise God. I want to praise God. In other words, when I'm amazed at God's power and control, we ought to shout with praise. Let's go to Psalm 95. The 95th Psalm, this is a familiar Psalm uh, to us, quoted many times. I want you to notice, verse 2, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Drop down to verse 3, for he is the great God, the great king above all gods. There's his sovereignty. I'm going to shout joyfully to God. I'm going to praise him for his sovereignty. Next Psalm, Psalm 96. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, worship the Lord, verse 9, oh, worship the Lord in his beauty, tremble before him all the earth. Now, why would the earth tremble? The whole earth tremble because he rules over all. So there's his sovereignty connected with praise. Same thing in Psalm 9, verse 1 and verse 5, I will praise you, O Lord. He will judge the world. He has control over all. 
Revelation chapter 4, that throne scene. You are worthy, O Lord, for by your will they exist and they were created. So here's his control, and he's worthy of all praise. So what reaction should I have? I've been studying about the sovereignty of God in order to provoke praise. I want to praise God. I want to sing praises to him because of his greatness and his power and his might. Here's the second thing it ought to do for me. It should deliver comfort to me. It should deliver comfort to me. What I'm learning from this, he is able to do exactly everything he has promised. So when I look at a promise of God, and I'm wondering, will that happen? He can do everything because he is sovereign. He has ultimate control. In fact, this passage, Ephesians 3 says, he can do more than we can ask. Think about the implication of that. You go to anybody, any friend of yours, and you ask them to do things, you can ask them more than they can ever do. You ask for money, there's only a limit how far that money can go. No matter how rich they are, there's only so far it can go, and you can ask more than they can deliver. It's not possible for you to ask more of God than He can deliver to you. And so that's a comforting thought. But furthermore, these passages, Revelation 4, God's still on His throne and in control is the picture. Daniel 4, God rules in the kingdoms of men. It delivers comfort in saying that He's in control of the world. So what does that mean to me? What that means to me is... That we can lay our head down at night in peace knowing that God is in control. We have chaos in the world. And so as we feed on the news of the day, that shouldn't terribly shock me. It shouldn't excite me terribly when I see what's going on in Washington, what I see going on in the streets, what I see going on in the world. It shouldn't upset me so that I have to turn it off and I can't take this anymore because I should be comforted knowing God's in control. God's in control. I'll lay my head down and sleep at night because God's in control. Here's the third thing it does for me. It encourages obedience and wisdom. How so? Well, God's sovereignty doesn't mean I don't have free will. I've learned that this morning. So if I have free will, then that means I must respond and obey His word. I'm not going to sit back and say, well, if I'm saved, it's because God chose me, because God's sovereign. If I'm lost, that was God's fault. He chose me to be lost. But I recognize, you know what? He's sovereign, but He gave me a choice. He gave me free will. So I need to make sure I'm obedient and submissive to His will. He's the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So it encourages obedience is what it does. doesn't discourage obedience. It encourages obedience. Here's the second thing it does with reference to that. That if I can choose my actions... And divine determinism is not correct. Then I need to see wisdom and make the best choices. I think that's the idea of in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, Colossians 1.9. In other words, everything's not predetermined. So whatever's going to happen is going to happen. God's already planned it. But I need to use some wisdom. Maybe about my health. Maybe about where I go, what I do. About my companions. That, that there's consequences to my actions. I decide, you know what, I'm going to just take off running as fast as I can on the ice. I'm probably going to get hurt because I didn't use wisdom. So since I can make choices and everything's not predetermined, then I need to use some wisdom and make the best choices in my life because I can make poor choices and suffer consequences. And I'm learning that from the sovereignty. God is in control, but he didn't determine every detail about my life. I've learned that from this text. What have we seen? The sovereignty of God. Sovereignty affirmed. 
Sovereignty misunderstood. And sovereignty, it's meaning to us. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. God's sovereignty doesn't mean you have no choice. You have a choice of whether you respond and obey or whether you reject him. God's still in control, but you have that choice. He gave you free will. Would you come this morning believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? While together we stand and while we sing.